welcome to the PGSM podcast. I'm Stefan Griffin, a junior doctor at the Northwest Thames Deanery in London. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. James Hull and Dr. John Dickinson. Dr. Hull is a consultant respiratory physician with a specialist expertise in assessing athletes with unexplained breathlessness. He's an invited member of the American Thoracic Society Expert Committee for Exercise-Induced Bronchoconstriction and is widely published in the field. He works in London at the Royal Brompton as well as the Centre for Health and Human Performance on Harley Street. Dr. John Dickinson is an exercise respiratory physiologist with a specialist interest in assessing exercise respiratory symptoms in athletes. He's tested over a thousand athletes from a range of sports and he also works at the Centre for Health and Human Performance here with Dr. Hull. So welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Um, can you tell us a little bit about both of your careers and sort of how you've ended up working together? So I, I got involved in this back in 2003. I, I uh, did an undergraduate degree in sport and exercise sciences at the um, at Bangor University in Wales. And then I had an interest in sort of breathing problems in, af- in athletes. Didn't really uh, have any potential opportunities, but I, I sent a few emails out. Uh, I sent one to uh, Prof- Professor Alison McConnell at Brunel University, and she just set up a, a project with, with uh, Professor Greg White at the Olympic Medical Institute, which, which was based at Norfolk Park Hospital, um, to investigate bre- um, asthma problems in elite athletes in the build-up to the Athens Olympic Games. And from there, I just got um, sort of six months after finishing my my undergraduate degree, I was I was testing Matthew Pinson and James Cracknell, getting ready for the Olymp- Olympic Games and looking at whether those guys had, had any asthma problems. Um, and then it sort of just trundled on from there. So I suppose for me, uh, I'm a respiratory doctor, but I actually, as an athlete, uh, found I couldn't breathe particularly easily. And so I self-referred to John, really, to see if I had exercise-induced asthma. Um, I'm slightly disappointed to see that I didn't. Um, but it did start me on a track thinking about what else could be causing breathing problems in athletes. And certainly our more recent work and certainly a lot of our clinical work between John and myself is actually helping people who don't have exercise-induced asthma but have other conditions which which mimic that condition. Okay, and we'll move on to that sort of slightly later on in the podcast. But sort of for the um, four doctors working within sport, what are the common conditions that they need to know? What's the bread and butter respiratory conditions that they should be comfortable with? So I suppose uh, by virtue of its prevalence, the most common condition is asthma. Um, and as a presentation in athletic individuals, people always think about exercise-induced asthma or exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, so narrowing of the airways that occurs principally in very intense exercise as being the most common uh, problem that people encounter and so we see lots of young athletic individuals who they get wheezed, they get breathless, they get cough and they're given a blue asthma inhaler because they're just assumed to have exercise induced bronchoconstriction. So certainly a good understanding of what that condition is and in fact how probably incorrect it is just to give an, ath- an athlete an inhaler is something we'll talk about um, but is one of the most important conditions for sports physicians to know about. But other important conditions are conditions which mimic exercise-induced asthma, particularly a condition where the voice box can close in called exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction, which again I'm sure we'll come on to. And of course it's important to have a handle on other allied conditions, nasal problems, chronic cough, um, respiratory tract infection, which is the most problematic and uh, highly prevalent cause of stopping uh, athletes competing and, uh, and achieving their best when they get to major competitions. So I'm sure we'll come on to talk about those, but really those, uh, you know, it's important to have a working, good working knowledge in all of those conditions. Okay, so if we just start off with, with, a, with, a, with a case study, so 
um, let's say there's a physiotherapist working in sport, not with not much access to maybe um, a, a doctor, you know, especially training, um, and they've se they're seeing an athlete quite commonly who is every training session presented to them with with a with wheeze, with shortness of breath. Um, what's your approach to, to to this sort of patient, and what, how should sports and medicine clinicians be approaching this patient? Yeah, I mean the the first thing is there uh, with, with the symptoms is is not to not to jump the gun and think think breathlessness, wheeze, asthma. So um, as Jim just mentioned there, symptoms are useful, but they're not diagnostic. Um, and we find about 50% of, our, of um, di diagnosis made on symptoms alone is, is incorrect. So um, the symptoms are helpful, but we can start to just ask questions, when do you get the wheeze? Is it an inspiratory wheeze? Is it an expiratory wheeze? They start to give you clues as to whether the, those symptoms may be related to an asthma-related problem or maybe it's exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction or, or, some, or something else. So it's good, it, it's, it's good that the physio is pick, picking up on these symptoms, but we need to do some more investigations as to, as to what might be causing those things. Um, the way we can do that to start off with is some basic spirometry. We can also do some exhaled nitric oxide assessments to get a handle on airway inflammation. Um, neither of those two tests at rest are diagnostic of, of, of asthma, but um, they give us an indication of whether the airways are normal, whether inflammation is normal. Uh, and then what we we usually start off with actually is can we do a test to, to rule in or rule out asthma as a cause of those symptoms? And that's usually our starting point. Um, if it's an, an athlete, we tend to go with a test called a eucapnic voluntary hyperpnea challenge, which is a very sensitive test. Um, it's probably arguments to say it's maybe too sensitive, but it's certainly, if you're uh, negative to it, it's a good indication that those symptoms are probably not related to exercise-induced asthma. Um, so it's, it, gives, it gives it a good, good handle on it. Uh, and then based on that test, if it's positive, we maybe treat inhalers. Um, based on the on the severity, if it's not, we can look at differential diagnoses like exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction, um, and even then, if it's positive, doesn't mean that every breathing symptom is asthma. So we need to make sure that that athlete's asthma is controlled, and if they're still symptomatic and we're confident asthma is controlled, then we can consider differential diagnosis as well. Okay, so let's say you're quite confident from the tests and from the symptomology that it might be exercise-induced bronchoconstriction bronchoconstriction slash asthma. The, apart from the sort of the, 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 the stepwise approach that you take in the general population, is there anything else that you, you found particularly useful for an athletic population? We, we, we probably still work around the stepwise approach. Um, however, we know that even exercise-induced bronchoconstriction is an inflammatory-driven problem. So it's not just about controlling the bronchoconstriction, it's about controlling the, in the inflammation. Now, if you're working with a recreational athlete that maybe has exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, might be exercising two or three times a week, probably given just a ventilator inhaler is fine. If you're working with a high-level athlete, though, that's training maybe five hours a day for six days a week, potentially they're triggering off that exercise-induced bronchoconstriction every day, which means they're using their subutal inhaler every day. And if you look at the stepwise guide, that means that just a ventilator inhaler isn't, isn't sufficient. So most of the time when we work with elite athletes, we go straight in with an inhaled corticosteroid and a, and a, and a ventilator inhaler um, based on the athlete that might, that might vary. Um, however, we can use things like the EVH challenge to give us an idea of how severe the individual's asthma-related problem is. So if they have a particularly large drop on, on the EVH and maybe they've got a large pheno reading, we may sort of jump onto step three, may give a combination inhaler maybe with a Monte Lucas as well, um, straight away, rather than scaling it up 
Um, and what's always great with 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 the the tests that we do is we can repeat the test whilst using their inhalers to track track the um, the um, how well they're working, uh, and then modify it based on based on what we're seeing. Yeah, I think it's also worth um, reiterating the point that there's other non-pharmacological interventions which are important and certainly um, evidence that some dietary modifications can help. Uh, humidification of the air, because a key trigger is very cold, dry air. So uh, John and I are working on a study at the moment looking at face masks to see if we can uh, moisten the air and reduce the provocative factor causing exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. Uh, certain types of warm-up regime, very important for athletes, and some find that incredibly effective in trying to induce what's called a refractory period where less likely for the airways to narrow on exercise. And then simple other things as well, such that if you do prescribe inhalers, then we spend a lot of time thinking about how an athlete takes an inhaler. It's often uh, well emphasized in general asthma treatment, but often we overlook that in athletes. Are they taking their inhalers in the correct way? Is it the right inhaler for that individual? Are they using, for instance, spacing devices? Uh, because often athletes like to drag the inhaler in as quick as they can, and actually lung deposition of these particles is very important. Yeah, I mean, on, on that on that point, we, we did some work with the GP swimming team recently, looking at inhaler technique, and we found that they were, their inhaler technique, in terms of the speed they were inhaling, was 10 times faster than what it should be for the inhaler they were using. So just a simple test like that in the build-up to the Olympic Games can just make the difference between whether that in, inhaler is actually going to help them when they're in competition. Okay, yeah. Sounds quite similar to the issue with Nordic hamstring. Uh, when you're doing Nordics and you know, everyone knows it's good for them, but people aren't doing it correctly or the compliance isn't quite there, then you're not going to get quite get the same results. Um, so in terms of, we've talk, spoken about um, sort of everything from the, sort of, the, the prevalence of excessive use of bronchoconstriction, You've touched on before that if someone's not getting, you know, not, not improving at the rate that you're that you're expecting them to, what tests are you are you then going to do? And you've mentioned one of the differentials, ILO. Um, can you tell us a bit when you start thinking about that and how you then approach the patient? Yeah, I mean, ILO has been a very under-recognised cause of breathing difficulties in young people. It's only really within the last five to ten years that we now recognise how important it is. Studies emerging suggesting the prevalence is maybe as high as 10% of the adolescent population have this condition. As I said, the voice box closes in, it causes narrowing of the airflow, a uh, narrowing of the uh, um, airway inlet, which causes wheeze and breathlessness. And so there are a few clinical pointers that may make you think about that as a condition to start with, and pr principally, athletes tend to get their symptoms when they're exercising, so at the peak of exercise their symptoms are at their worst and then when they stop exercising those symptoms generally tend to resolve relatively quickly whereas in exercise induced asthma you can get the symptoms when you exercise but they they can sometimes get worse when you stop exercising so the gold standard test to establish a diagnosis of ILO is to actually look at the voice box during exercise uh, with a small and flexible camera and so it's called a laryngoscope you pop it through the back of the nose and then that athlete um, exercises with the camera in situ to allow a continuous visualization of the upper airway. And that's been used in the Scandinavian countries for years now, down to ages of you know five to ten year olds. Um, it's 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 an invasive test and we're often you know looking for other ways to make the diagnosis and sometimes as John will say you can pick it up on other surrogate markers with lung function testing 
Um, we've been doing studies uh, recently supported by the British Lung Foundation looking at a device, a handheld device, which, which, which might pick this condition. But unfortunately, the gold standard really is to visualise the larynx during exercise. Okay, and from a practical point of view, for people listening you know, around the UK, are there many centres um, around the UK that offer this sort of diagnostic test? Or? Uh, sadly not at this time, um, there's more um, coming online, um, but the centres are relatively few and far between at this point, whereas in contrast, in, sadly in the Scandinavian countries, they're way ahead and actually, uh, I think, uh, for Northern European populations, they get better access in Scandinavian countries, but it's something we need to do much more about, and, and the same is true in other parts of the world, and certainly there's only very few centres in the US at the current time. Okay. Um, so t talking about ILO, you mentioned the sort of gold standard diagnostic procedure. Um, I think there's quite, there are quite a few high-profile cases in the media of people being diagnosed and treated for ILO and having good outcomes. What's the, what are the sort of the treatment options for uh, for the disease? Um, well, we can look at it conservatively initially. So um, I mean, the first thing we look at is actually the way they're trying to generate the breath. Um, a lot of athletes with with uh, laryngeal obstruction tend to have a a lot of activation of their upper, upper area. Uh, upper respiratory muscles, so that could be a lot of neck, a lot of shoulder muscles getting activated when they're trying to draw the breath in, um, and that ultimately leads to a reduction in the the movement of the of the rib cage well uh, through the breath. So effectively, they breathe less air in per breath, so they have to increase their breathing frequency, and then that has um, follow-on effects for their exercise performance. So we can look at the way they're trying to generate the breath. We're trying to optimize their their breathing technique. Um, Again, it's quite difficult to objectify whether someone's got a good breathing technique or not, um, but we can, certainly, we can certainly video it. We've got certain systems that allow us to monitor the movement of the thorax and abdomen dur uh, during a respiratory um, cycle. So we can use things like structured light pl plasmography. We can use a lot to optoelectronic plasmography. Uh, we, um, we can just video someone and just you, you, um, sort of um, do it that way. Um, but there's nothing really that's that's that I can sort of say is that use this and it will tell you whether someone's breathing right or wrong. Um, we're still developing a technology to to do that. Um, however, we can still get it. We can still gain an idea as to the way someone's breathing. We can optimize it. And what we find is a lot of the time, if we optimize someone's breathing technique, then they their symptoms reduce massively. Sometimes they don't reduce totally. But what a lot of athletes say to me is once once we've optimised their breathing, their symptoms have gone away, they might get it back, but they realise that what's going on. And so instead of continuing to drive the breath using their shoulders and their, their neck muscles, they relax their shoulders and they get and they reverse those symptoms becoming a point to the point where it impacts on their performance. So they get a lot more management of, of their condition. Um, however, if that doesn't fully control the problem, I then send them back to James, and he goes on and does the next bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there's there's the place of different types of treatments yet to be established, and certainly, sadly, there's no randomised controlled trials to f to fully direct what what best treatment should look like. Um, John is usually incredibly successful, actually, with a variety of those breathing techniques, but also the use of inspiratory muscle training in. Uh, selected cases. More recently in the States um, there's been some nice work published looking at the success of biofeedback by a chap called Todd Olin in Denver looking at ways in which you can get athletes to visualize what their voice box is looking at when they're actually exercising so on a bike on a treadmill and then trying exercises to try and increase the laryngeal aperture and then if those interventions aren't successful in 
some and highly selected cases, surgical intervention has been used, and it's a type of procedure which is termed a supraglottoplasty, where effectively the parts of the larynx which are causing the occlusion are surgically trimmed back in order to stop that occlusion from occurring. Yeah, and ju just on the point on the biofeedback, you can get some inspiration muscle training systems that, that Power Breathe and others use, where you can actually use something like an inspiration muscle training to track whether someone's generating effect, an effective, powerful breath. And usually with individuals with sub um, suboptimal breathing patterns, the power that they generate through their breath isn't, as, isn't consistent. So they can use those devices to actually train themselves to breathe more effectively as long as they can see the biofeedback as they're doing it. And a lot of athletes like that. Okay. So with it, let's say um, there's a, with it, into the clinic comes a sort of high-profile high athlete um, who you successfully diagnosed with ILO. Um, do they have to take a, a period out of sport, out of competition, in order to reach a certain threshold you have them to go back in, or is it completely dependent on symptoms? Um, I... I generally say that they can comp compete as long as they can com com put up with the symptoms, um, and then we build the program around the, around their, their training and competition. Usually, the breathing programs I prescribe are around about twenty minutes a day of work, so it doesn't usually impact too much on their actual other schedule. And then they can start to embed some of the practices that we're trying to get them to do within their within their training, and then hopefully into their competition. Usually, I, we start to see improvements within about three to six weeks of, of most individuals as they're and that's without them having to stop competition okay and likewise if this if, if conservative management hasn't quite worked and, they, and they're needing some form of more invasive treatment what what's the what's the near or the shortest sort of return to play that you can probably should ask what's the safest return to, to play tie yeah so i mean the surgical interventions are undertaken by ENT surgeons um, and so there is some recovery of, the of what is quite a vascular bed. Um, but generally speaking, you can have quite an accelerated recovery. Um, and indeed, last year, um, we operated uh, on an elite-level athlete who in a very short time period was able to return up to um, full-level training and then compete uh, in the Paralympics. Um, and so I, it has to be guided on an individual basis. Um, and the recovery from a surgical site, but yeah, anyway, within a month, I think you're back to pretty much full training. Okay, so I think one thing that is recognised, and I've, I know some listeners will maybe see you speak at, at like at the conferences such as Basim, um, is that there's not that much information in the public domain or within the sports access medicine domain about these conditions. Um, have you got any sort of um, have you got any favourite resources that you use or you you point people towards? Um, again, there's, there's not that much out there. I mean, I, I'd especially say on the conservative side of treat, treating breathing technique that there's a lot of there's a lot of you know not got to call it nonsense um, uh, of of different things. I mean, effectively, if you're looking at sort of breathing breathing technique, sort of things, things that the principles that you can get from yoga are really good, um, and then sort of a couple of those principles around posture and an IMT will sort of set you, set you on. When I say IMT and spiritual muscle training, um, set you on sort of the, the right sort of path. Um, but it really depends on what, what's causing the issue. Um, in terms of asthma-wise, I think Asthma UK have got some brilliant brilliant sort of resources to sort of help help manage as asthma-related conditions. And they're starting to get um, more and more resources available for exercise as well, which which, which is great. Um, so Asthma UK website's a, a, good, a good sort of starting point um, for, for, for that as well. I'd simply uh, echo that. 
there needs to be more resources, there needs to be more patient-centred resources or athlete-centred resource resources. The most important thing really is that clinicians listening to this um, think about the fact that this might not all be asthma. So if someone's wheezy, breathless, coughing, an athlete comes to you, you know, it would be great if people would just consider that there may be other causes of these symptoms and it isn't just a case of giving a blue inhaler. Yeah, and, and I'd probably just echo that. I mean, we, we've had some cases where athletes have been given an, an inhaler and it's not helped the symptoms. So that, so that, so that now the athlete's got the diagnosis of asthma, the GP's then just simply gone stepwise guide. We'll go step two, that doesn't work. We're going to step three. So they're using combined, combined inhaler, might be using Montelukast. They're still not responding. So the GP's giving uh, prednisolone for a week or so. And only at that point, they've sort of considered, well, maybe this isn't asthma or not. And it's at that point, well, maybe actually before we go on to step two or three, maybe we actually need to go and refer for an actual proper test to make sure it's asthma that we're treating it. Okay, well, I think on that point, that's a, a great way to sort of to bring things to a close. I'll point listeners to both your Twitter handles, just because so, I know you're both very active on there, and, and you know, if they're, they're going to get good information from this, it'll be through you two. So yeah. it's at breathe underscore two underscore win for, for you, James, and Dr. John Dickinson. Um, bit easier there yeah um but thanks ever so much for your time today no problem brilliant thanks Steve. you've been listening to video podcast with me stefan griffin dr john dickinson and dr james hull look at joining us again soon thank you